Okay, so we're recording the conference, and um, uh, the title again is The Surety and the Uniform Commercial Code, and Lisa's going to lead off by just sort of giving us a run-through uh, of, of the UCC and the various, uh, various titles. So just as a, a framework and some background, uh, the Uniform Commercial Code, uh, which for a lot of people is, is sort of a, a beast that's avoided, uh, it's an interesting promulgation. It's a combination of scholars at the American Law Institute and the Uniform Law Commission, which is comprised of delegates from all the states. They've come up with uh, 10 articles or titles which have been adopted in most jurisdictions, but it's not uniform everywhere. Uh, states have the option of adopting some articles or titles, but not all. On occasion, they are offered variations to choose from. And some states will not only pick and choose between the articles and the variations, but sometimes they add their own variations at the time of enactment. One great thing about having uniform codes is that we do get some consistency among the states. And we also get really good annotations and illustrations, which not all statutory schemes come with, uh, particularly um, for those of you who've had the occasion to look at mechanics lien statutes or prompt pay statutes or, or different things like that, uh, they can be uh, a bit of a mess and they don't come with a lot of explanation, but the UCC does. We're going to be citing uh, primarily to the Maryland Code sections today, which are identical to the Uniform Code sections. We wanted to note that even though we have great parallelism, not all states do. And I certainly uh, would encourage you to verify the current status and content of the UCC in the relevant and applicable jurisdiction for any matters that you have. Uh, it's possible that code sections we're referencing don't exist in a particular state, they exist in a different place, or they've been modified. So we're, we're really going to focus on just a couple of the, the articles of the Uniform Commercial Code uh, this afternoon, but I did want to give a rundown uh, in addition to Articles 2 and 9, which we're most concerned with, uh, with the other contents of the code, just so you have a sense of scope and there is a lot of interrelationships. Uh, Article 1 provides general provisions and definitions. A lot of your important definitions are here, and I want to point out that there is a provision uh, that captures all of the common law of a particular state where the uh, the title is enacted, and it's going to include things like fraud, principal and agent, and concepts that make contracts void or voidable. So the Uniform Commercial Code doesn't stand independently, and it also doesn't attempt to rewrite those concepts across all 50 states. It instead embraces what those states have and their differences. Next up is Article 2, which governs the sale of goods, and we are going to talk about that in a couple of our examples today. Most importantly, Article 2 provides a very different context for contract formation uh, than common law, and it also gives us warranty and remedy provisions that are comprehensive. Article 2A uh, governs the leases of goods. It is almost identical to Article 2, but not exactly the same. Uh, one of the key differences is that it does cover finance leases, uh, and those are, are substantially different from other sales and leases of goods. And I will note that you would distinguish a lease to be governed by Article 2A and a security interest to be governed by Article 9, which I'll get to in a moment. 
by considering the useful life of the goods at the end of the lease term and the fair market value versus buyout cost. Uh, the code doesn't really care what a document is captioned as. It's more concerned with its effect. Uh, so just because it says a lease doesn't mean it's actually going to be a lease. Uh, Article 3 and 4, not an issue today. Just wanted to point out that Article 3 does cover negotiable instruments. Those are going to be your promissory notes and your checks. Article 4, bank deposits and collection of those checks. Certainly, Article 3 and 4 issues do come up in the business of a surety now and again, but they're not routinely claims issues. Article 5 deals in letters of credit, and most states have enacted Article 5. Uh, these are often an alternative for collateral. And you're going to look at Article 5 for your just very basics on requirements, rights and obligations of the parties, as well as warranties and remedies when those are in use. Article 6 is bulk transfers or bulk sales. Only a few states have that. Maryland's one of them. Um, that's when a business who deals in inventory sells more than half of its inventory at one time, uh, and it protects unsecured creditors. Probably not a big issue for the surety. Uh, Article 7, documents of title. This one does come up because it's warehouse receipts and bills of lading. These are going to be relevant when you're reclaiming supplies, particularly when reprocurement is problematic because you have custom manufactured goods like structural steel for a particular project or custom millwork. Also might be relevant uh, when commodity prices are going up. Finally, Title VIII, not on our list for today's investment securities, and Title IX secured transactions, which is a hot topic for us. Uh, article, title or Article 9 covers security interests in all personal property. That's tangible and intangible. It's pretty much everything but real estate. Within 9, we look at procedures for repossession and sale. And this is a, a good point to, um, to bring up that timely notice when you have an Article 9 issue on the surety side is very important because self-help repossession by secured creditors moves very, very quickly. Uh, Article 9 also governs priorities in the same collateral among different creditors who all want to get the same stuff. And it also governs how the creditors deal with a bankruptcy trustee. And just to give you a flavor for these priority issues, uh, there are three basic priorities. A perfected security interest will always trump an unperfected security interest. And I think that's common sense for most of us. If both are perfected, the first to file or perfect that security interest will win. If both are unperfected, the first to attach wins. And so those are the three basic rules that resolve most of our Article 9 issues. We do, however, have something that's called line jumping or almost a super priority for a purchase money lender who enables a debtor to purchase new inventory or equipment notwithstanding an existing floating lien from another lender. There's a, an additional concept which gives our buyers in the ordinary course of business the benefit of an implied release of any security interest that may exist in the inventory that they purchase. Uh, finally, I want to note on Article 9 that a security interest always attaches automatically to proceeds of collateral upon their dis, uh, disposition and that the surety's equitable subrogation rights arise from a completely different source, and they are outside of the construct of Article 9. Uh, while they may sometimes have a similar effect, 
it's not the same concept. I think Mike's going to talk a little bit now about um, the first situation uh, where we're dealing with UCC in claims. This, yeah, this is just a, uh, a short one here, a quick one, because it d doesn't come up that often, I don't think. Uh, but it did come up for me uh, earlier in the year. We had a, a situation with a bank uh, claiming that the sureties' uh, rights to equitable subrogation uh, were required to be perfected under the UCC. And after I laughed at the guy on the phone, I then went back to find the support for that and, and make sure that, that, that I was correct, that that is totally incorrect, and it is. The great weight of authority holds that surety's rights uh, of equitable subrogation is not subject to the UCC. So you don't need to file a UCC-1 or comply with Article 9 in order to perfect your, quote-unquote, your rights to equitable subrogation. Uh, there's a, there's a just... A huge, a huge number of cases. One in particular here, the moder uh, modular structures case, uh, 27F3-72, uh, 3rd Circuit, 1994, states that the overwhelmingly and essentially unanimous post-UCC decisions in federal as well as state courts have held that no UCC filing is necessary to perfect a, a surety's interest. Similarly, in, uh, in the in-rate J.V. Gleason case, Eighth Circuit, the court, court stated that courts have held that the UCC covers consensual security agreements only, not those arising by operation of law. Thus, the surety need not conform to the filing requirements of Article 9 to enforce its equitable right of subrogation. And that's, um, that's one, of the, one of the ways to address the issue is, is you know, does... Does Article 9 apply by its terms? And, and under Section 1-103, um, uh, the, the UCC um, expressly states that it does not displace the particular provisions of the, of, of the principles of law and equity, which are deemed to supplement the UCC. So the contemplation is, is not that the UCC uh, is done away with equitable rights, but rather is a supplementation, I think as Lisa mentioned, starting out. Um, so there's nothing in the UCC that expressly or implicitly refutes uh, subrogation. And then um, Section 9109 regarding the general scope of Title IX uh, provides that the title applies uh, to a transaction regardless of its form that creates a security interest in personal property or fixtures by contract. And this is what the court was saying, that, you know, equitable subrogation arises by operation of law. It's not a right that arises by contract. And so, therefore, it's not something that would fall under the scope of Title IX. So that's uh, further, um, further uh, support for the fact that the surety's rights to equitable subrogation do not need to be perfected under Article 9. And then Article 9 has a provision that I, I have been unable to find any cases that, that really talk about this in the context of suretyship, and, but it, it provides that um, at 9109 Section D6, uh, it's, that's the provision of Article 9 that, that excludes various transactions from the uh, application of Title 9, and it excludes an assignment of a right to payment under a contract to an assignee that is also obligated to perform under the contract. I think an argument could be made that, that a surety uh, might be able to use that as a, um, you know, as a basis for arguing that Title IX doesn't apply if you got into that situation. 
So I think the, the issue is pretty clear. I've got, I've got a list of, uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 cases which all address the issue and have held that the UCC does not apply to the surety's equitable rights of subrogation. I'll turn it back over to Lisa. Sure. Um, so one of the instances where Article 2 comes in, uh, it's going to be any time the surety inherits by takeover or subrogation, uh, any kind of supply contract, or gets a payment bond claim from a supplier, it's just going to be figuring out what the terms of that underlying contract are. And the first, first step in that process is going to be a determination of whether it's an Article 2 contract or not. Most states utilize what's known as the predominant purpose test, sometimes referred to as the gravamen test, to determine if it's an Article II or what I'll generally refer to as a common law contract. So if you've got a hybrid with some sale and some service or installation component, you've got to figure out, is the sale of goods predominant and the installation or service merely incidental? If so, then you are in fact governed by Article 2. If it's the other way around, you're just utilizing that state's regular common law. The identical contracts, uh, one governed under Article 2, one governed under the common law, could result in very, very different remedies and outcomes in litigation uh, by the applicability of Article 2 or not. So once you get past that hurdle, an important thing to keep in mind is that if you are working in Article 2 and if it's a bare-bones agreement and there are lots of blanks, lots of uh, issues that are just silent, the Uniform Commercial Code operates to backfill anything that's missing. So just because there's no mention of a warranty doesn't mean that there are no warranties. In fact, silence on that issue suggests substantial comprehensive warranties because that's what the code would fill in for us. One of the really problematic issues, even if you get past the hurdle of determining that it's an Article II contract because it's more about the goods than the services, is what terms will apply. Sadly, no one ever gets together and negotiates a single, integrated, fully executed contract for anything anymore, and certainly not for the sale of goods. Uh, what we see more commonly is that a buyer will send a purchase order routinely by email at this point, to a seller. The seller will respond with some sort of acknowledgement form or perhaps will just ship the goods and include some sort of acknowledgement invoice or packing slip. And both of these documents are covered, usually on the back in very small print, with boilerplate terms and conditions that don't match at all. And this leads us to what is affectionately known by the UCC geeks as the Battle of the Forms under Article, under Article 2, Section 2207. And the Battle of the Forms is admittedly a complex flowchart or even game board of an exercise in sorting out what terms and what conditions actually apply to an agreement. At common law, for those of you who are familiar with the mirror image rule, you might remember that if an offer and acceptance didn't match perfectly, the acceptance was deemed a counteroffer. And so if the parties went ahead and performed, notwithstanding a mismatched offer and acceptance, that acceptance, that last document dispatched, becomes the controlling document. 
We've completely done away with that under the code, and instead we go through a complex analysis that examines what terms the parties agree on, what terms they don't agree on. If we've got two merchants, which is almost always the case, if a surety is involved, you've got a, a contractor and a supplier, or two contractors, something like that. We examine things like whether additional terms that have not been agreed upon are material alterations, whether either party objected to the other party's terms. And we even look for language uh, called the proviso language if either party made their offer or acceptance expressly conditional upon their own terms. And so it's, it's a fairly convoluted process. Um, when I say that it's a flowchart or a game board, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I have a full color flowchart that I use to examine these, uh, and I probably get about once a month, a battle of the forms issue to go through and, and figure out what the payment terms are, what the warranty terms are, and it really does take some, some time to sort that out. Uh, once you do examine all of that and figure out what the applicable terms of the contract are, uh, based on Article 2 backfill, based on battle of the forms, offers terms, acceptance terms, one other thing to keep in mind uh, particularly if you've inherited a conflict situation, is that Article 2 emphasizes notice of claims and defects. Uh, if you are rejecting goods for cause and you don't want to pay for them, you've got to give notice to the seller. You've got to itemize everything that was wrong with the tender of delivery. And a failure to do so can lead to a waiver of those things. So as is often the case with the surety, uh, you're, you're picking up the pieces on the back end, uh, mistakes have already been made, and it may be difficult to go back and correct things if a reasonable time to give notice is long exhausted. Um, to the extent that you're trying to triage the damage and deal with newer issues or catch up on things, uh, giving good detailed notices under Article 2 uh, is going to be your best bet at getting back on track and enforcing all of those warranties and remedies that you're hopefully going to have at the end of that battle of the forms analysis. Okay. So I'm going to talk about a situation that, uh, that literally I'm just finishing up dealing with. I uh, came up here about a month or two ago, and it, it involved a situation with a bonded principal uh, in this case, in my case, it was a flooring subcontractor on several bonded jobs. And because of the nature of the flooring business, the principal had to buy the materials in advance and store them in its, in its warehouse. And, and the reason is because, obviously, you know, a lot of that material is long lead time, and they need to have it on hand as soon as the, uh, the, the facility becomes or the project becomes uh, available for the materials. So they, that's typical. And it's not limited to flooring contracts. You can have any, any of the trades. Uh, being in a position of having to buy materials in advance and store them for a period of time until the project is ready for them to be installed. So in this case, the flooring material was all in, in the in the warehouse, uh, and then uh, the the principal went and got a a letter a line of credit from a bank and took out a two million dollar loan and used uh, it gave a security interest to the bank and the security interest attached to all of the uh, principal's interests, in, including uh, the interest in the materials in the warehouse. And then the, uh, the principal promptly collapsed and went out of business, went into bankruptcy, 
and uh, the the bank and the and the trustee decided that it would be a great idea to sell all the materials in the warehouse so that they could uh, you know pay off the bank and create some funds for the uh, for the estate of the of the, of the debtor at that point. Uh, needless to say, this is a potentially nasty problem for a surety because on the one hand, you know you've got contract funds have already been used to pay for those materials or at least have been paid to the principal for those materials. And, uh, and if those materials are sold, the surety is going to have to repurchase those same materials in order to uh, finish the job and, and may incur delays in doing that. And if the principal didn't pay the suppliers for those materials, now you've got the possibility of payment bond claims coming up for those same materials that uh, were in the warehouse that are now sold. So it can be a pretty messy situation, and I've heard tell of, of uh, situations where the sureties have had to pay twice for materials. So, But there's a couple of ways under the UCC to attack this problem. Uh, the first is to assert that the title has passed to the materials, and therefore the materials are not subject to the security interests of the bank and are not property of the bankruptcy estate. The second is through your equitable rights of subrogation to assert that the obligee who paid for the materials was a buyer in the ordinary course and takes free of the security interests of the bank uh, under the UCC. And then finally, you could assert that the sale of the inventory was authorized uh, either expressly or by implication by the secured lender, in this case the bank, and is, is free of the security interests of the, under the UCC. So first, if you, you look at it from the, from the standpoint of, of whether the title has passed, and the, the reason you're looking at title is because if, if the, the principal, the debtor, does not have title in the materials, then a subsequent security interest would not attach to those materials. Uh, so under uh, 2401, uh, title to goods passes from the seller to the buyer in any manner and on any conditions explicitly agreed upon by the parties. Comment number three to 2401 provides that explicit agreement can include usage of trade between the parties. So initially you want to start looking at the contract documents to see if there's any language in those documents that would transfer title to materials that were paid for and stored off-site. And so, for example, in the AIA A201 uh, contract, the standard form contract, section 9.3.3 provides that title transfers to the owner at the time of payment for materials. In addition, you want to look for any bills of sale or other types of documents that might have uh, expressly transferred title to the materials that were stored in the warehouse. In our case, we were able to find those bills of sale, uh, and we did have some contract language, so we were able to, to work with that. Uh, you just need to establish payment, you know, establish the, the copies of the checks and all that. Uh, the second approach is to assert that, that there was a buyer in the ordinary course. Under section 9-320A, 320A, provides that a buyer in the ordinary course of business takes free of a security interest created by the buyer-seller, even if the security interest is perfected and the buyer knows of its existence. So, in our example, the seller here is the principal, and the buyer, of course, would be the, the obligee. So the question is, you know, what is a buyer in the ordinary course under 9320? And UCC section 1-2019 defines that term as a person that buys goods in good faith without knowledge that the sale violates the rights of another person and the goods 
and in the ordinary course from a person in the business of selling goods of that kind. A purchase is in the ordinary course if the sale to the person comports with the, the usual or customary practices in the kind of business in which the seller is engaged or if it comports with the seller's own usual or customary practices. Of course, good faith is also defined under the code as um, honesty in fact in the conduct or transaction concern. So basically, I think you could make that argument because typically in the construction context, you know, the, the obligee, the, the general contractors, they're in the business of buying those materials and the, the trade subcontractors are in the business of selling those materials and ordinarily the, these things are happening on, a, on an ordinary basis with standard contract forms, et cetera. So I think you can make that argument pretty, pretty good in a, um, a standard situation. So, so then the, a third, the third approach would be uh, to argue that it was an authorized sale. So Section 9-315A1 provides that uh, a security interest continues in collateral notwithstanding a sale or other disposition unless the secured party authorized the disposition free of the security interest and such security interest attaches to the proceeds of the collateral. So there's two aspects of this. One is there's got to be authorization, and two, there has to be a continuation of the security interest in the proceeds if the materials are sold. So... Um, the second requirement of the, the, the continuation of security interest is generally met under the UCC because there is a provision for automatic um, um, security interest in cash proceeds of a sale of collateral. So that part is covered. Authorized sale, typically in the, in the circumstance where the materials have been purchased by the principal and are stored in the warehouse, at that point, the argument could be that they become inventory. They're, they're, they're now the inventory of the principal in its transactions with the obligees and the general contractors. So in that circumstance, uh, courts have, well, typically I think you would find in the financing agreements with the banks, if you're able to get a copy of those, that the banks have authorized the sale of the inventory because they want the, sale, the inventory to be sold so that the money can be used to pay down the loans. And courts have recognized that as well, saying, look, if you're financing inventory, you, you want these things. You understand that this inventory is going to be sold so that the money can come in to pay back the loan. So the courts uh, have looked at that and said there's an implicit authorization there that, that the goods be sold free of the security interest. So those are a couple of ways to get around that situation where you've You've got the, the debtor, the principal going down with materials in the warehouse, and we asserted all of those arguments in our, uh, in our brief in the bankruptcy court, and uh, we were able to convince the trustee to release our materials free and clear with no payments. So uh, it, it, it can work for you. Um, variation on Mike's example of that very, very recent case he's had uh, is more so related to equipment than materials. But if you have an equipment lender under Article 9 or an equipment lessor under Article 2A seeking to recover equipment that is currently being used on a project, uh, so this could pop up for a financing or takeover surety or a subcontractor surety, you're going to have essentially someone claiming an interest in the equipment or materials, uh, what I refer to as inside the fence. Uh, something that is currently being used on the project, it is needed to complete the project, and you have this party asserting an interest 
seeking to remove it. Uh, a lessor might file a payment bond claim. Um, the secured party is more likely to repossess, possibly in the middle of the night. A um, couple things to look at here is whether there are contract provisions uh, providing that the owner or contractor has rights to this equipment. Look at the timing of that. And maybe even consider some creative arguments about whether the contractor lacked sufficient rights to grant a security interest or whether you could uh, construe those contract provisions as a sublease upstream to a general contractor or an owner. Um, certainly joint checks and negotiating payment would be uh, ideal here, um, but the real key should be keeping this equipment on the project so the project can finish rather than getting into uh, a long battle over equipment that's already walked away. Okay. All right, so we've run out of time. Uh, let's do a quick wrap-up uh, before we get into the question and answer session. The next edition of Surety Today will be September 12th uh, at 1230, of course, and our topic will be recent decisions in non-dischargeability and bankruptcy. There have been a couple of, uh, of uh, Supreme Court decisions that have resolved some disputes or split them on the circuits regarding uh, fraud exception and regarding um, defalcation exception. So we'll talk about those with Jason Potter uh, from Wright Constable. Quick rundown here, uh, upcoming surety events that I'm aware of. Uh, you've got um, uh, August 18th, the Atlanta Surety Claims Luncheon. September 7th through the 9th, the Perlman Conference in Seattle. September 14th is the Philadelphia Surety Luncheon in Philadelphia. The uh, September 21st through the 23rd is the Northeast Surety Claims Conference in Atlantic City. And you can sign up for that on uh, Forcon International's website. They can, you can sign up online there, and it's free for uh, in-house company people. So uh, with that, let's, um, let's uh, end the recording and unmute the lines, and we'll do, answer any questions that we have.